Let's go back to the passage we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11, and I've entitled this message, That's No Way to Behave. Last week we looked at sanctification, the week before that it was justification. The week before that we talked about the truth that we are totally dependent on God's power. And today we're going to hone in on, focus in on sanctification and give some very clear examples from Scripture about the types of sins that God wants us to get rid of in our lives so that we can live holy and righteous before Him. Now you need to understand how this works though. When I was a, and and this is illustrated by, by a childhood story, when I was a boy, my parents worked diligently to instill respect in me. That is, they worked to make sure that I was respectful to the authorities in my life. Of course, my parents, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. So I was to be respectful to my parents. I was supposed to be respectful to my teachers. I was supposed to call them Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. I remember my first grade teacher, Mrs. Williford, my second grade teacher, Miss Van Buren. And on through, we, I never called them teacher or hey you. They just worked to instill respect in me. They, they worked to instill respect for the law, for law enforcement. We always called them police officers. We never called them cops. I guess the new word is popo. I don't even know where that comes from. But we always called them police officers because my parents wanted me to be respectful. Now, I grew up with uh, two younger brothers. There were three of us boys. And if you've grown up with a group of boys, you know that there's constant fighting and uh, competition and irritation and frustration. And I've told you some of those stories, but there was one thing that could unite my brothers and I, and that was the babysitter. For some reason, we always decided that the babysitter was our enemy and that we needed to make sure that we worked as a team when it came to the babysitter. So more than one time, I remember my parents coming home after probably doing good things, and the babysitter has an evil report (laughs) about how we acted and how we treated her. And it was not uncommon as part of the, the, the process of instilling discipline, part of the disciplinary process, for my dad to say something like, deans don't act that way. You've been disrespectful, Uh, the babysitter asked you to do something, or you were hiding from her, and whatever, and deans don't act that way. Now, when my dad said that to me, I never thought, oh no, I've been disrespectful to the babysitter, I'm no longer a dean. That never occurred to me that my dad was trying to point out that I was not his son. What my dad was trying to help me understand is because you are my son, I expect you to act a certain way. And when we become children of God, the daughters of God, the sons of God, God has an expectation of how he wants us to act. And I think sometimes God deals with us much like my earthly father dealt with me. Hey, Christians don't act like that. That's no way to behave. It doesn't mean that we aren't God's children. It means that God loves us far too much to leave us in that state of sinfulness that he found us in when he saved us, when he justified us. And some of those behaviors are seen, some of those behaviors that are 
uncharacteristic of God's children are right here in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. So let me read the passage to you again. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye're washed, but ye're sanctified, but ye're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So these are a list of things, of, of behaviors, of sins that are uncharacteristic of God's children. And that's why God gives us his Holy Spirit to convict us, to say, hey, that's no way to behave. You must stop doing this. That's why he gives us his grace, that uh, unlimited grace, God changing my desires, God empowering me to say no to sin so that I can say yes to God. God's grace is sufficient for all of our circumstances. Where sin did abound, the Bible says, grace did much more abound. Grace doesn't just, just doesn't meet our sin, just doesn't keep up with our sin. It's much more unlimited grace. And finally, that's also why God gave us a church. Because you are surrounded in this room. You are surrounded by people who love you who want God's best for you, who will pray with you, who will put their arm around you to help you, who will protect you, who will uh, ask you and hold you accountable. So let's continue with this concept of sanctification. Justification is when God saves us. He takes us by, by his grace, his free gift. He takes us out of our sin. Sanctification is that process of washing us, making us holy so that we can be used by him. So when we come to God, when we come to God, we always come to God sinful and wretched and without hope. But God justifies us. He doesn't leave us that way. And then he sanctifies us. He begins to transform us into holy Christians. He begins to change us so that we're conformed to the image of his son. He purifies us so that we can be used by him. 2 Timothy 2 says... Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then it says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, these iniquities, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet, or prepared for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. And that's the work that God is trying to do in us God is intensely, he is intensely interested in our sanctification. We saw three passages last week. Let me remind you of what 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. If you are a Christian, and I trust, my hope is that every person in this room this morning, and all those that are listening to me, all of you are Christians, then God's desire is to sanctify you, to conform you to the image of his Son. So look again with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and notice the things that he wants us to get rid of. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at this passage. Father, thank you for justifying us, for saving us, not because we're good people, not because we're smart, or not because we're religious, or because we're intelligent, but saving us because you are a good God who is full of grace and mercy. With infinite love for your creation, and you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place, who took our sins on his own body so that we could become the righteousness, your righteousness through Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for that work of salvation, of justification. And we want to participate in this work of sanctification where your grace and your power and your desire is to change us into the image of your son, to transform us into holy Christians, to purify us so that we can be those vessels that are meat, that are prepared for the master's use. That is your use. So Lord, open our eyes to these pockets of selfishness and sin in our life that keep us from being used fully by you. Help us to understand what you're calling us to do and to comprehend the unlimited grace that you give to us so that we can be righteous, children of light in the midst of a crooked nation. And so we ask for your help today. I pray that you would uh, mold and mold my words and enable me to communicate these truths to your children. I pray for anyone that came this morning, not a Christian, who has not yet been saved, not yet been justified, and I pray for their salvation. Again, not because they're a great person, but because you are a great God. And so we look to you to do a work in our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice in verse 10 there, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. I I like that he uses that word inherit. You know why? Because you don't do anything to inherit. It's based on a relationship. If you're a son and your father and your mother have great wealth and they leave it to you in, in, in their will, you inherit that. They leave to you a house or they leave to you a farm or they leave to you a business. You inherit that. And we, none of us earn our way into heaven. We inherit it. Because we are the sons of God. We are the daughters of God. And 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That, what honor that is to be called the sons of God. But then he goes on to say, Every man that hath this hope in himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. God's children don't act like that. He wants us, because we are his child, He wants us to behave as his child. The first thing mentioned in verse 9 there is fornication. Fornication is any sexual activity outside of marriage. It would include such things as pornography. And God doesn't want his children to be involved in that. Now, I have to help you here. If you listen too much to our culture, you've been taught, you've been told that the key thing in sexual activity is consent. That's not what God says. God says that sexual activity is only to be between a husband and a wife and no one else. Sometimes people say, well, we're going to get married or we're we're thinking about getting married. Listen, 
until you're married, God's word instructs us to keep ourselves pure and to avoid all fornication. Fornication, God's children don't act like that. We have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We have God's infinite grace to empower us. And you have a whole church full of people who care about you. The second one he mentions is idolatry. Idolatry. Some of you are familiar with the mythology about a King Midas who was so covetous, he he enjoyed riches so much that when he was given a wish, he wished that everything that he touched would turn to gold. And he had a great time at first. He touched the roses in his garden and they turned to gold. He could just touch common rocks and they would turn to gold. But then he reached out to take a bite of his meal and guess what? His food turned to gold. And the story is, it's just a made up story, just a myth, but the story is that he reached out and he touched his daughter and his daughter turned to gold. Now, you know what? Everything that humans touch, we have a tendency to make into an idol. Everything that we really enjoy, everything that we love, it, it, it has a tendency to be turned into an idol. One of the, I, I, I'm convinced one of the greatest idols in um, American society today is music. People are, they make their, their favorite singers, in, they, put their, they put their posters on the walls in their bedroom, and they worship those people. Those people come to town, they will clear out their schedule to make sure they're at that music event. And it can become an idol. Now you say, well, I, I think you're a little bit overdoing it. Well, I understand. I didn't watch this, but I heard uh, from news reports that just before one of the songs at the Grammys, CBS tweeted, we are ready to worship. Now, why did they do that? Because for them, music has become their idol. Don't let music be your idol. Don't let sports be an idol. You say, how does sports become an idol? Well, I noticed when we were living in Oregon, we lived just a few miles from the church and was, we would drive from our house to our church's meeting place. We would pass a sports bar called Big Al's. And you know, anytime there was a big athletic event, especially if the Trailblazers, that's the team they're important, the Trailblazers were playing an important game on a Sunday. Or if it was Super Bowl Sunday, like it was last week. Big Al's parking lot, and it was a big parking lot, would be full of cars. And we'd drive to our church, and our church also had a big parking lot, not as big as Big Al's, but a big parking lot, and it wouldn't be full. You know what it told me? Some people thought sports was more important than worshiping God, because sports had become their idol. I always get a kick out of it when, you know, recently it was the Kansas City Chiefs who won the Super Bowl, and someone says, yeah, my team won the Super Bowl. Your team? What do you mean? Do you own them? No. Do you play for them? No. Do you even go to their games? No. That's why we call them fanatics, fans. Now, there's nothing wrong with sports. I've, I've watched some football games. I've watched some basketball games even in the last year. I don't watch much baseball. Sorry, Hudson. But I, it just doesn't appeal to me. Nothing wrong with watching the occasional game, but don't let it run your life. Don't look at your favorite sports team's schedule and say, well, I guess I'm going to miss church this Sunday because, because what it has is become an idol. I, idolatry, God's, God's children don't participate in that. You have the Holy Spirit. He lives inside you. You've got God's grace and an infinite amount of God's grace. And you have a whole church of people 
who love you. Don't be tripped up by idolatry. The next word is adultery. This would be sexual activity outside of marriage. You have a husband, you have a wife, but instead of being faithful to each other, the husband is keeping another woman on the side or the wife is stepping out on her husband. Now, we would like to believe this doesn't happen that much, but the truth is it's very common in the United States. I'll tell, the, tell on the Mongolians because it's easier. When we lived in Mongolia, we had gone to, I, I had a Mongolian friend that was helping me conduct some business. So we showed up and this lady wanted to sell us uh, one of these Connex boxes. We needed a Connex box. And uh, my Mongolian friend is just making small talk. That's what he did. He was really good at talking. So he asked her, he said, are you married? Yes, I'm married. You know, where's your husband? Oh, my husband's in Korea. And the next question after she said, my husband is in Korea, his next question to her was, have you taken another man yet? Now, he wasn't a Christian. The Mongolian was not. And the lady, I take it, was not a Christian. I know if he would have asked me that, I would have been offended. But she didn't seem to miss a beat. No, not yet. <laughs> Whatever that means. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery destroys families. It strikes at the very heart of the family. And Jesus tells us that not only is adultery what we do with our bodies, but adultery is what we think in our minds. This is what Jesus had to say in Matthew 5. Jesus said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. God wants us to take our thought lives seriously. What are we allowing into our eyes? And it is so easy in our sex-saturated culture to end up seeing things and saying, well, I've seen worse. It's, it's not a matter of seeing better or worse. It's a matter of guarding our eyes. Jesus goes on to say, if your right eye offends thee, pluck it out. Now, he is not telling us to pull our eyes out. He's helping us understand the seriousness of sin and what we allow into our eye gate. So adultery, God's children don't act like that. You have the Holy Spirit living inside you. You have the, an infinite amount of God's grace. You have a church of people who love you enough to walk through with you righteousness the next two words I'm going to treat together, the effeminate and the abusers of themselves with mankind, both of these two terms refer to homosexual activity. Now, don't listen to the people who tell you we're being progressive because we're expanding our sexual horizons. There have been other cultures that have expanded their sexual horizons. Several years ago, uh, 10 years ago now or so, I was teaching at a Christian school. I had a couple of young men come, and I think their question was sincere, so I answered it as if it was sincere. They said, listen... Can, without using the Bible, teacher, without using the Bible, can you tell us why you are opposed to homosexuality? I said, I, I, I said this, this to them. I said, let me ask you a question. Can you name a single civilization that was built on homosexual behavior? Seriously, if everybody in a culture or a vast majority of people in a culture are engaged in homosexual behavior, how many generations are there going to be? It doesn't work. It doesn't. And you can look through history. I, I can point you to secular books. Homosexuality is the end stage of a civilization, not the beginning of something new. It's the end of all that's good. 
And God loves us far too much uh, to, to, to leave us in our sin. I have some historical references. I'm going to skip over that. If that would be a help to you, you, you can see me later. But let me say it this way. When we take fornication that was mentioned first, adultery, when we take this effeminate and the abusers of themselves with mankind, when we take these four terms together, we see God's intent, God's plan for sexuality. And any perversion of that, any deviation from that dishonors our heavenly father. God says it this way. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. That's Hebrews 13, 4. Now that's not what we're being told today. In fact, if I can equate this, I, I think these terms that I've talked about, they have become our modern day idol. Think about it this way. Some of you are old enough to remember when you were a kid, maybe, maybe a young adult, that you might ask someone, you know, what, what church do you belong to? And they would give you a denominational affiliation like, oh, I'm Baptist or I'm Presbyterian or I'm Methodist. How many of you remember a time like that? Okay, that was how they identified themselves. Now, did that mean they went to a Methodist church? No, not necessarily. Did that mean they understood Presbyterian doctrine? Nope. They may say I'm Catholic. In fact, one time I was talking to a Catholic. This is 30 years ago. I was talking to a Catholic, trying to share with him the gospel. He says, you know, you know more about Catholic doctrine than I do. And I don't feel like I know all that much about Catholic doctrine. Why did he say he was a Catholic? Well, because when he was a little baby, his parents had taken him into a Catholic building and they had sprinkled some water on his head and he's Catholic. Now, how do we identify ourselves today? I'm not talking about you and I. <laughs> I'm not talking about the people in this church. I'm saying if we were to go to just average place where we can meet people, how would people refer to them? Well, I'm, I'm homosexual. I'm heterosexual. I'm bisexual. I'm pansexual. I don't know how many of these identifiers they have. But you know why we as a culture want people to identify themselves that way? That has become our God. You remember during covid the lockdowns, especially at the first. Some of you remember people that had elective surgeries scheduled. What happened to those surgeries? They were canceled. Sometimes people even had heart surgery or, or, or uh, uh, some other major surgery scheduled, and they would be postponed. But surgical abortions weren't canceled. Surgical abortion centers weren't asked to close their doors for a limited amount of time. They were asking us not to come to church, but you could have your abortion center open. Why? Because that is the temple of our modern idolatry. Listen, we as Christians, we aren't to be identified by our sexual desires. We are in Christ. We are God's children. And God's children don't act like that. We have God's Holy Spirit within us. We have his infinite grace that enables us. We have a whole family, a whole church family that loves you. Don't be tripped up by these sexual sins. Here's the next one, thieves. Thieves. People steal for a lot of reasons. Most, mostly, if we could sort of boil it down, I would say most people steal because frankly, they don't respect private property. 
Just because it belongs to you doesn't mean that it can't belong to them. Some of you remember during the lockdowns, there was some rioting going on and people would be breaking into Best Buy to steal things. And we were told that that was an expression of their, uh, I don't know, it's, that's called thievery. It's, it's, it's stealing. And the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. But let me help you think through this. You know, when I steal, when you steal, what we are saying is we don't think God has provided all that we need. And so we have to steal it. And God's children don't act like that. The eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. Stealing? Really? God's children don't act like that. We have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We've got God's infinite grace that uh, enables us. We have a whole church standing beside us. We don't need to steal. We don't even need to covet. The next word is covetousness. Now, what's the difference between stealing and covetousness? Well, at a basic level, stealing is an action that I do. I take something that doesn't belong to me. Coveting is something that's in my heart. I might not take the item, but I wish I had it. I think if I just had that item, boy, life would be grand. I'd I'd be satisfied. I'd, I'd be happy. And the truth is that item will not make you happy. But that's what covetousness is. We covet other people's houses. We can covet other people's cars, covet other people's possessions. But there are less obvious things we covet. Sometimes we covet another person's job. Oh, I wish I had a job like that guy or that girl. Sometimes we covet other people's health. Why are they always healthy? And I'm constantly sick. We can trust that God will supply all that we need. I didn't say all that we want. There are a lot of things I want that God hasn't supplied. And what I have to remind myself is the reason God hasn't supplied that is I don't need that. Covetousness. God's children don't covet. Not with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Not with God's infinite grace to overcome sin. Not with a church full of Folks who love us, we don't have to covet. The next one is drunkards. People who drink to the point of drunkenness. Now, my advice to you is that you should avoid avoid all intoxicating beverages and all intoxicating drugs with one exception. And that is if they are about to cut you open with a scalpel, then I would take whatever drugs they give you. That's my advice. But you know what? How do we treat drugs and alcohol in our society? Oh, I need that. How can I live without that? And God says, drunkards don't inherit the kingdom of God. My children don't act like that. A few verses later in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any is a reminder that God doesn't want us addicted to things. And again, our society is going the other way with this. Well, certain drugs should be legal. Certain intoxicating beverages don't really hurt you all that much. But God's children don't act like that. We have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We have His grace to overcome any sin. We've got a church that's full of your friends, your family, God's children don't act like that. Here's the next one, revilers. 
Now, revilers simply means people who use abusive language. And we can look at the Greek, we can look at the English. They just mean people who use abusive language. Now, we don't use this term to revile or revilers very often. We don't use that term, but we do a lot of reviling as Americans. Revilers wound with their words and attack with their tongues. They use their speech as swords, their words as weapons. They get excited when their words cut deep. Revilers blast people with paragraphs and pour out derisive language on their enemies, even belittle their friends. Their weapons are sarcasm and criticism and mockery and gossip. We can find abusive language on the internet. That's one reason I'm not a big fan of social media, because so many people use it just to say all kinds of mean and cruel things. To what point? If that's the type of internet that you swim in, get out of the pool. You're swimming in a, in a cesspool is what you're swimming in. Now, you can use social media, right? I know people who say, well, I, I look at my grandchildren's pictures on Facebook. Great, look at your grandchildren's pictures on Facebook. And block the people that say your grandchildren look ugly. Seriously, there was abusive language in the workplace. Be careful how you talk about your boss. Not because your boss might hear, but because God is listening to you. And he doesn't want us to use contemptuous, abusive language about anybody. There's a plenty of abusive language in politics. But God's children don't act like that. There's abusive language, unfortunately, in the church. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be, but be careful how you talk about one another. Unfortunately, I'm most concerned about caustic speech in our homes, toxic criticism of each other, a spouse that is constantly belittling uh, his wife or a wife constantly belittling her husband, parents that constantly put their children down, children that are so uh, um, uh, disrespectful that they put their parents down, A prime indicator of a marriage that's headed for divorce is toxic criticism. And there's no place for it in the Christian's life. Now, there is a place to calmly put problems out in in view and discuss them. And God's grace enables all kinds of difficult conversations. But there's no place for reviling each other. There's no place for abusive language, caustic speech, toxic criticism in the Christian's life. God's children don't act like that. Extortioners. Now we talked about the person who's a thief. He just steals what he wants. We talked about the person who's covetous in their heart. They wish they could take it, even if they don't take it. The extortioner is the person that manipulates somebody into giving them things. I didn't steal that. Well, you didn't steal it, but you certainly put enough pressure on that person that or, or, or preyed on their weakness or their ignorance enough to take from them. And again, extortioners, God's children don't act like that. Now notice what verse 11 says, and such were some of you. So let me ask you, does it bother me? Do you think that it bothers me that we have people here today with alcoholism in their past? No, it doesn't. No, such were some of you. But those people are washed, they're sanctified, they're justified. 
By God's grace, they're just as righteous. By God's grace, they're just as righteous as the person who's never taken a drink of alcohol. Isn't that amazing? Don't we have a great God? But he says, hey, my children don't act like that. Does it bother me that we have people today with fornication or adultery or even worse in their past? No. No, it says such were some of you. They're washed. They're sanctified. They're justified by God's grace. They're just as righteous as the most moral person in this room. But again, God's children don't act like that. It ought to be in our past, not in our present, and certainly not in our future. Does it bother me that we have people with thievery or greed or extortion in their past? Again, no, it doesn't. Such were some of you, but you are washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Does it bother me that we have people here today whose tongues were swords? once filled with venom in their past? No, no, as long as it's in your past. Here's the key. God wants all of that to be in our past, not in our present. If you're God's child, and today you're struggling with alcoholism, you're God's child and you still struggle with sexual sins, you still struggle with idolatry, or greed, or your tongue, then you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to take his grace. He's offering it, unlimited amounts of it, and he wants you to give up those sins. Now, let me remind you what I taught last week. With these sins in mind, let me remind you what I taught last week, and that is we are sanctified. God is at work in our lives to make us holy, to put these sins out of our lives, and to transform us into the image of his son. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's at work in your heart, in your life, to change you from the inside out. The first thing I want you to understand about sanctification is if these sins are in your present, these sins are things you've struggled with in the last week or the last month, and you know they're going to come up again, God is ready to forgive you. And the purpose of his forgiveness is to bring these habits of unrighteousness to an end. Take your Bible, hold your place in 1 Corinthians 6 and look with me at 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. You know that verse and I'm going to quote it to you as you turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, almost to the end of your Bible, just a few books before the end. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins... God, he is faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I want you to look with me at 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. God doesn't give us this gift of forgiveness so that we can keep sinning. He gives us this gift of forgiveness so we can put the sin in our past and move forward. God sent us his Holy Spirit. The book of John, the gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, If I depart, I will send him, that is the comforter, unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. You know what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts? He says, hey, 
you got to stop doing that. Now, we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can just tell the Holy Spirit, hey, sit down and shut up. I don't want to hear from you. And you know what? Strangely enough, God in his grace and in, and in his sovereignty will leave us alone. But that's when it's really bad. Have you ever driven with someone who frankly should not have been on the road? Maybe their eyesight was, was going, maybe their mind was going, but you thought to yourself, I am not going to make it home. If you've never ridden with someone like that, the next time one of my brothers comes, I can set you up with that type of ride. We had gone to my uncle's funeral in the Seattle area, and they had rented two cars, and I don't know who let them drive, but Dad, we never should do that again. We're driving on I-5 through Seattle. I, we must have been going 90 miles an hour. And this guy following, which was the car I was in, was determined to keep up with his brother. And I thought for sure, there's going to be more than one funeral. <laughs> I didn't say anything, though, because I knew it wouldn't help. That's worse, isn't it? It would be better if sometimes we'd listen to the Holy Not better if sometimes. It would be better if we listened to the Holy Spirit. When he says, hey, you've got to quit driving like that. Hey, that's not safe. Don't do that. God's children, don't act like that. Because why? We are sanctified. Our lives ought to be different. You say, but everybody else, it doesn't matter what everybody else does. How many of you have ever worn clown makeup on your face? The really white kind of clown makeup. Just, just Kitty and me? Okay, just the two of us. Oh, okay, a couple other people. Good. Thank you for your honesty. I remember the first time I put on white clown makeup on my face. And all of a sudden, I realized how yellow my teeth had become. <laughs> because there was this glaring white makeup on my face. And you know what? We look at other sinners out there and we say, I'm not so bad. I'm not as bad as those people. And we feel pretty good about ourselves. But we look ourselves, we look at ourselves compared with God's holiness. We see just how bad we've become. And God says, my children don't act like that. But I also mentioned last week that we have to cooperate with God in this work of sanctification. There in Philippians 2, verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The very verse before that says, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've got to put our car in gear and move it forward. There's all the unlimited grace that we need. There's God's forgiveness. There's the Holy Spirit who will point out sin in our life. But if we refuse to cooperate with God, we're not going to get very far. Any more than you're going to get very far by putting your car into neutral and revving the engine. You may have the most powerful engine on the planet, but if you don't put that power through the transmission, you're not going to get anywhere. Some of us need to put our car in gear and start moving forward. And I mentioned last week, there's three components of this sanctification. As we cooperate, number one, it's to know our new position in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Again, I'm not worried about what's in your past. I'm worried about what's in your future. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're going to have three people that are going to be baptized today. One of the reasons for baptism is to symbolize new life in Christ. They've been buried with Christ 
and now they're going to be raised to new life. Are we living out that new life in Christ? We have to know our position in Christ. We have to reckon it to be true. We have to believe it to the point we're going to step out by faith and we're going to, number three, yield. Yield to God, to the Holy Spirit's leading. Utilize God's infinite grace, expecting victory. Romans 6, 13 says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If I had to rely on my own power to sanctify me, I would have no hope. But it's God's grace, God's power working in me that can change me if I will cooperate with God and yield to him. Let me encourage you as we get to the invitation to memorize that verse, Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And ask the Holy Spirit this week to point out areas of sin in your life. I don't know what they are. I've mentioned 10 that that God gives us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There could be others for some of you. Maybe yours was mentioned. But whether it was or not, remember, God's children don't act like that. And if you find yourself behaving in those ways, it doesn't mean that you're no longer God's child. It means you need to change your behavior. Just like when my dad came home and found out we had been disrespectful to the babysitter, he didn't say, out of my house. He said, no, no, you're going to change your behavior. Let's change our behavior to the glory of God. As I give the invitation this afternoon, two questions. Number one, are you justified? Are you saved? Do you know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life? Number two, if you do, then you're a child of God. You're a daughter of God. And what sins has the Holy Spirit put his finger on today and said, hey, you need to change that because God's children don't act like that. That's no way to behave. Father, thank you for your help in this matter, it's not your help, your power in this matter of sanctification, because without your power, we can not find that holiness, that righteousness that you expect out of your children. We'd be hopelessly spinning our wheels, hopelessly running in a hamster cage if it was up to us to work out our own sanctification. We're so grateful that it is your power that works in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure if we'll merely cooperate with you. I'm asking this morning for those that are not saved that they would see their sinfulness and their need for Jesus Christ. I'm asking for Christians this afternoon who they've allowed sin to have dominion in their life. One of these 10 or maybe something I didn't mention in the Holy Spirit has said, you can't act like that. That's no way to behave. I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would continue the conviction, the reproof that that Christian would set aside that sin and cooperate with you, that that son of yours or daughter of yours would find help, would find someone to pray with them, would find someone to to, uh, disciple them, to teach them your word so that they can say no to sin and yes to you. And Father, so many times we find ourselves tripped up at unexpected times. And I'm asking, Father, that you would guard our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears and our mouths so that we don't uh, fall into sin, 
So we're aware of where we're walking. We're walking circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the most holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.